to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, and more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm very happy to be talking with mindfulness teacher and co-founder of the Buddhist Geeks Project, an uber geek himself, Mr. Vincent Horn. Vince is part of a new generation of teachers translating age-old wisdom into 21st century code. In this session, Vince and I discuss the radical sense of experimentation, the great unbundling of the Dharma, ways which mindfulness practices and awareness practices can complement each other, something that's turning out to be a theme on the show lately, We also go into the perhaps greatly exaggerated reports of the death of Buddhism, as well as a scintillatingly juvenile foray into enlightened scatology. So without further ado, I give you the episode called The Great Unbundling. Hey Vince, welcome to Deconstructing Yourself. How's it going today? I am in one piece so far. Excellent. That's as good as anyone can hope for. (laughs) Uh, How would you feel about introducing yourself to the audience? Yeah, sure. So yeah, my name is Vince Horn, and I do a lot of things. I teach meditation. I try to stay abreast of what's happening in the Buddhist and mindfulness worlds, because for whatever reason, those areas have been really important to me the last decade or two. And uh, I run a project called Meditate.io, which is a teaching project. And we basically put on virtual training programs and work with students. I say we, this is my wife, Emily, and I. And before that, I was running a podcast called Buddhist Geeks for about a decade. A little podcast called Buddhist Geeks that no one's ever heard of. Yeah, people <laughs> people inside a very rarefied space know about it. <laughs> then people outside yes. usually say, that's a cool name. And they're right. <laughs> and you also did the conference of the same name, correct? Yeah. So after a number of years of podcasting, it seemed like a good idea to actually meet some of these people and bring this weird group of people together. So we put on a number of in-person gatherings. Yeah. Now, I heard a rumor somewhere in the backwoods of North Carolina that uh, you might be resurrecting the Buddhist Geeks podcast. Yeah. Um, what I've been telling people is that there's some stirrings in the bardo, <laughs> meaning that that liminal place between life and death. There's some activity happening. Yes, that's true. So we're we're not getting a firm yes. We're getting stirrings <laughs> from the bardo. <laughs> well, it'll be yeah, as yes as a yes can be in the liminal phase. Excellent. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm I'm starting to reach out to talk to people and try to imagine how this could be done and uh, done well, including with you. Love to have you on there. Oh, great. Okay, we can uh, trade guesting on each other's podcasts. That sounds awesome. I'm curious what your background is meditation-wise. How did you get into all this, and what do you think has been the most useful practices for you leading up to you now being fairly well-known and a teacher and so on? Well, I had my first formal introduction to meditation by my Aunt Janan, when I was 13, I took a meditation class with her. And so I sort of come by it honestly in the sense that my whole family has been, on my mom's side, has been interested in meditation um, since as far back as I can remember. Yeah, it's it's uh, both lucky on the one hand, being introduced so early and, you know, 
like every family religion, um, it has its own downsides and drawbacks as well. Or at least that's what I found. Yeah. What I learned from her is actually now coming back around as being a really important thing, which was uh, mostly uh, working with awareness of the earth, um, bringing one's attention down into the earth and kind of combining that proprioceptive awareness down there with sort of visualization, imagining different kinds of, I don't know what you call them, like they're kind of new age meditation exercises, I guess. These earth visualizations that you're describing sound like Reggie Ray. Exactly. Um, there's a strong earth awareness component now that I'm aware of his work and working with it myself. It's sort of bringing that back, those memories back online. So, Ah, so you're doing Reggie Ray stuff currently. I am. The somatic body-based stuff has been the direction I've been uh, cattle called into. <laughs> <laughs> Herded into. Herded into. <laughs> By some malevolent force yes. <laughs> called life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome. So what Aunt Janine got you into early on, you're finding yourself uh, circling back to working with the body-based practices and some, you called it, New Age visualizations. Yeah, I'm not doing the New Age visualizations as much. Not that I have anything against them either. Yeah, that introduction was helpful. And then after a number of years of just being an angsty teen... I kind of came back around to it in college and had a, a bit of an existential crisis uh, questioning, you know, what is this? What's this all about? Why am I getting a degree in computer engineering? And why does that matter? How much money I make? And, you know, those kind of questions. And that sort of led pretty quickly to an introduction with Buddhist practice and in particular insight meditation and Vipassana practice. And from there I was hooked and gone. I was, I guess, uh, I was 19 at the time. Yeah. So beyond that, what has really um, inspired you teaching-wise? So for sure, the Vipassana insight meditation stuff has been my spiritual home. And then also being introduced to Zen and practicing with a couple different teachers who were strongly influenced by that approach. That's really shaped the way I see things. Um, and then also going to Naropa University. I was a student there for a number of years. And it's hard not to be influenced by Chukim Trungpa, the person that founded that institution, rogue Tibetan teacher. Hard not to spend a lot of time naked and drunk. <laughs> Surprisingly, I was, I was in a very straight edge period during that time. So I, I don't think I even maybe had a drink or two <laughs> during that time. <laughs> I was no more drunk on meditation. Ah, excellent. <laughs> did you actually get a degree from Naropa? I did, yeah. The feared uh, Buddhist studies degree? Yeah, essentially what they were teaching in the religious studies was, was kind of like a comparative mysticism with an emphasis in, on Buddhism. So it was a lot of the first person mystical practices and perspectives from different traditions where Buddhism was very heavily in the center of, of that whole mix. Yeah. It's such an amazing place. I actually moved to Boulder in the late 80s to go to Naropa and amusingly never actually attended, but did uh, spend my requisite time naked and drunk. So. <laughs> Good. So you got the, uh, you got the, you got the badge anyway. I got the, I got the full transmission as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> From what I understand, that is the transmission. <laughs> yeah, me too. 
Excellent. So I'm curious, Vince, you know, if we dig around in your background, like I have done a little bit, we see things like you being honored on the smart list of 50 people who will change the world by Wired uh, UK and a power player of the mindfulness movement and so on. So you're very humble, but at a young age, you've had this massive influence on Buddhist practice and maybe meditation practice in general. So I'm just curious, what right now is exciting and interesting to you in that world? Um, I think, you know, zooming out to the high elevation view, I think what I'm most interested in and excited about is the way that the whole field is breaking apart and how new things are kind of coalescing out of that and how there's such a sense of radical experimentation that's starting to take root in those worlds. I'm not sure if people realize how radical it is because in a way it's sort of what happens, I guess, when the torch gets passed to a new generation. And this generation that's starting to come into their own, which is my generation, I'm an elder millennial, so sort of jokingly (laughs) tell the young millennials, I'm your elder. (laughs) Um, But, you know, these, these weird young people they just have such a different orientation than the boomers and folks that I've studied with culturally and in terms of their relationship to technology, in terms of how they view the world and the kind of fluidity of that view. And so I think there's a lot of experimentation and a lot of interesting things happening at that point where the old systems and the old lineages and institutions are getting kind of crushed and the jewels and the little bits and shiny pieces that are really what attracted people to them often in the first place are coming out and sort of being recognized in their more crystalline state, you know, in their more unbundled or refined, potent. It's like synthesizing something out of the the traditions, you know, pulling out that good mind-bending stuff. Yeah, so you're describing something that is, to me, quite intriguing, which is as you said, the unbundling of these really, dare we say, precious jewels of these traditions and breaking them out or decontextualizing them from their traditional cultural contexts and practice contexts, and maybe even then reconfiguring them and re-envisioning them in a completely different context, almost like a modular kind of idea where we can plug and play with a whole bunch of different practices, different uh, outlooks, and perhaps even creating both brilliant and maybe even exquisite hybrids, and at the same time, some horrible misfires and complete failures on the way. So is there anything about that, any particular modularization or unbundling that right now is really on fire for you? Just to zoom in a little bit. Yeah, I mean, for me specifically, I think just the idea of starting to play with some of the core meditative elements of some of these traditions, and in particular, seeing the way in which certain types of practices aren't just embedded in one tradition, but they're embedded in multiple traditions. They're that core everywhere I've looked in terms of my practice life, I keep finding things like concentration practice or or certain kinds of investigation practices or inquiry, like using questions or opening the heart or finding these formless 
instructions on letting go of all technique and just being or coming back into the body and feeling the body and being one with the body things like that that you know they they're emphasized in different ways by different traditions but the harder i looked in the theravada tradition the theravada buddhist tradition the more i saw all these practices were there even the ones i were more explicit in say zen or in inside the Vajrayana Tibetan context, they were still in the Theravada. Um, they just, you just had to look really hard to find them. Um, and so that to me is interesting that independently, I mean, obviously with some amount of interaction, these different traditions kind of came upon, I don't want to say things that are perennial, but that they're repeating and that they're pretty persistent is interesting. And so I've been curious to just kind of play with pulling out some of those practices and almost playing with recombining them in different ways. I sort of thought of it in terms of music. I'm not that much of a musician, but you know, I think it's interesting when different notes are played together, you can get these new kind of harmonies, chords, they're called. And I feel like the same is true with some of these core meditative techniques that when you kind of weave them together, they produce something that's altogether different than the individual components coming together. There's some new emergent chord, if you will, that gets strung. Now, I know you and your wife, Emily, have been creating a course based on kind of this idea of chords or putting together a number of these different practices. Mm -hmm. So you've been actually unbundling and then actually rolling it out to students. And I'm curious, can you give me an example of one of these chords that you feel is particularly powerful or useful or interesting or fun? Yeah. So there's, you know, there, I guess there'd be like simple chords and then maybe more complex ones. So, and then the simple terms, I think of, you know, combining two things together. Although I know this is arbitrary in a way to describe the core elements and how we describe things, because like every system it's made up. But the current five elements that we're playing with, concentration, mindfulness, awareness, inquiry, and heartfulness, um, we've been sort of playing with combining those in different ways. And so bringing two together, I found it really interesting to play with the whole idea of mindfulness and awareness, those two together. Where, where mindfulness, I guess, is important to say or describe because um, we're using that term in a specific way. But we've been describing mindfulness as the practice of noticing what you're sensing in real time. Yes. Um, where there's some amount of cognitive awareness, that's the noticing part, where there's some tracking of what it is that I'm sensing. And then there's the sensory experience, which is not inherently cognitive. It's precognitive or it's just the sensation and the feeling of the sensation. And then being able to track that in some sort of real-time way, which for me has the quality of like using a microscope or exploring particles you know, and seeing how they're made up and how they change and how they move and where their boundaries are and things like that. Whereas with awareness, as you know, or more formless type of practice where the point isn't to look at something, but it's to be something or to be nothing. To me, bringing those two together and sort of exploring the, you know, what feels like a real dichotomy at first, but which actually really bleed and, and weave into one another and can kind of play together mindfulness, awareness, mindful awareness. That to me has been a really powerful one. And it seems like it's at the core of what's made the mindfulness movement so popular. Something that I've been really interested in and excited about for the past several years is 
how in our former understanding anyway, mindfulness and uh, let's say awareness type practices or non-dual type practices seem to be utterly separate traditions and not only traditionally separate, but in terms of what you were doing in the practice or even the outcome of the practice, they just were from opposite sides of the tracks, so to speak. Mm. And maybe you're too young, but when the Neo-Advaita thing first hit in the early 90s, you know, their scathing and uh, critique of meditation and meditators and all that really emphasized this supposed difference. Back then, the rallying cry, especially in Boulder, where I lived for a long, long time, was, you know, anyone who was stupid enough to actually think they had to meditate was only getting in their own way and blocking mm -hmm. their inherent realization of the always perfectly pure and absolutely complete shining awareness and enlightenment that was always and forever already there. And, um, <laughs> you know, I'm not even exaggerating, right? The, no, no, you're, you're being pretty, pretty kind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By the way, I always landed on the meditator side of that. But just because of the historical unfolding, at least in the way I experienced culture, the two things, mindfulness practices and awareness practices, were always contrasted as very different. And a few years ago, I wrote a long research paper about non-dual practices, and um, it eventually became a little book but I just wanted to go into the history of them and, and study them and work on that a little bit. And it just really got my mind going. And after a while, I realized that mindfulness-type practices and, and awareness-type practices, as different as they seem, had multiple areas of contact and multiple ways that they could really reinforce and even augment each other synergistically. And it just became apparent that any separation there was just pedagogical or, to put it bluntly, ridiculous. They help each other in a lot of ways. So this cord that you're describing between mindfulness practices and awareness practices, I think, is super powerful and really interesting. Yeah, likewise. You know, in the Buddhist world, they'd already, in a sense, have been integrated, at least by, for instance, the a lot of the Tibetan systems have already kind of made space and room for both and talked about how to you know, how certain ones are quote unquote higher than others. They have their own story about the relationship between them, but they find a way to make room and space for both of them. They do. Although, as you're saying, it's kind of in a step-by-step -step or systematic way. And even that is not actually necessary. They can exist at the same time or yes. going back and forth in one practice system. Yeah, we could say they exist in the wave and particle form together. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And did you have any particular way that you've been exploring that, how to go back and forth with that chord, with that two-note chord? Yeah, I mean, my training on the mindfulness side was through, mostly through the noting meditation, Mahasi Sayadaw's noting technique. I think uh, you talked to Kenneth Folk, who was I think your first guest and uh, Kenneth's one of my earliest meditation teachers. And that's what I learned from him was. I have no idea who that, that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that technique is really focused on parsing reality up 
into really subtle categories of experience and seeing how quickly all that's changing. For me, that practice naturally led to more formless awareness um, place, which is that as I kind of worked through that practice and everything started dissolving and falling apart and things were difficult and scary and I, you know, at some point just kind of let the process happen, I found myself just naturally wanting to rest and be and gently inquire into, you know, who am I? What is this? And so the one led to the other, even without knowing that. And so I found that to be a powerful sequence is to start with the mindfulness practices and then to end with awareness, almost like going to the gym and working out. You know, if you've done an intensive exercise where you kind of go really hard and then you just let go and relax completely, which most people at the gym don't seem to do, um, (laughs) (laughs) then, you know, the, the amount that you push and you exert, it's almost in the opposite direction one can rest um, because of that exertion, there's ability to rest more deeply. So I found with the mindfulness practice, you know, the more actively I kind of investigate and try to really clearly see everything that's arising, the more when I let go of that practice and just drop technique, the more of a sense of, of utter relaxation and just presence there is. Well said. And of course, that would point in the direction that the Tibetan tradition gives for the sequence, right? That you would start with mindfulness and end with awareness type practices. Right. I find um, the other direction to be very useful also. If you listen to the first interview that I did with Shinzen on deconstructing yourself, we go into that in some detail. But in an overview kind of way, the idea is that awareness practices can be vastly deepened and clarified by getting into a Vipassana style deconstruction of their elements, which almost doesn't make sense when you come from the Advaita tradition. But having come from the Vipassana end of the tradition and having experiences of non-dual type stuff, you begin to notice that there are areas that can be kind of excavated in the corners of experience or in the edges of awareness that remove subtle blockages, remove subtle dualities, remove subtle points of ignorance in that field of awareness, places that are stuck or holding. Mm. And of course, the traditional way would be to just kind of keep relaxing, keep just letting it be. And maybe over a long period of time, those would just naturally, those stuck spots or hidden spots would reveal themselves or release automatically. Mm. However, I found it very interesting to bring a kind of precision and a clarity that is typically fostered with Vipassana practice to those areas and notice that the awareness or wakeful quality of them can be quickly enhanced. So the sequence can work in the other way also. Yeah, that makes sense. And that, you know, this conversation and this exploration is what I get really excited about when I see the the deconstruction of, of Buddhist meditative stuff happening because it opens up the door to have this kind of conversation where, of course, no one meditator is going to know all of the different sequences and ways of working with the mind and consciousness and the body. And yet there are so many incredible ways to do it that do have different results. And you said it yourself, the radical experimentation is what's so fascinating. The fact that 
different people can go off and try this stuff out in kind of an unhampered way or unhidebound way and see what they come up with. And as I mentioned, there might be a lot of dead ends, but we also can discover some really interesting stuff. Yeah, I think that's the thing about evolution is that evolution is wrought with dead ends. I mean, that's how it works. But we're building off of things and trying new things, and that's the only way we're going to find appropriate responses to our situation. Yeah, I can hear the traditional Buddhists out there. They're hearing this conversation and complaining that these combinations have all been tried before. Nalanda University, yada, yada. You know, they, <laughs> that's a pretty sophisticated <laughs> argument, Michael. It is. It is. You know, there's thousands of years of experimentation and they've already weeded out all these dead ends for us. So I'm curious, Vince, what you would say to that. I mean, it's possible that you could, you know, go back through all these like heaps and heaps of texts and find these things. And I think that's why studying Buddhism classically is still interesting because there is such a huge repository of information. But it's also true that being able to find those things in a text is very different than knowing them for oneself and having done the hard work of figuring out what in that text actually was useful and what was the sort of metaphysical framework that you also inherited with it that is potentially conflicting with your own understanding of reality <laughs> and how to square those things. That's right. A lot of those practices come along with their own baggage culturally, so to speak. Yeah. Does everyone need to go back and everyone that tries to find useful things that are probably there? You know, I'm not saying that argument isn't, isn't accurate. You know, do they have the time to do that excavation work and translation work to get to the point where they can then utilize it in some useful way? Probably not most people. I certainly don't want to waste the rest of my life doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Although I probably will end up wasting most of my life doing it. So. <laughs> I, I think it's too late to turn back. <laughs> um, yeah, and even if you were to excavate it in that way, you would then still need to try it out. And so we're sort right. of jumping to the trying it out phase. But beyond that, I'm curious if you think that there are things that we understand or information that we have or a wider view of cultural history and tradition and psychology and sociology that we can bring to bear that will actually allow us to discover things that have not just all been done before. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that's where the chords, the idea of chord originates. You know, it's when you bring these elements together in a new way, suddenly something new emerges. There's no way to predict that if I played these three notes together, they would harmonize in this way. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like if I were just looking at all the notes and I were look, studying the notes, I would not know that um, because that information is not present at that level. But then to try something new, to bring new elements together, it's always going into, in my mind, exciting and dangerous territory because we don't know um, if the experiment really has never been tried, what the results will be. And I think that's where the most interesting and exciting work is to be done. But it's also, it is quote unquote dangerous in a sense 
you know, in the same way that doing psychedelics is dangerous or going into uncharted territory is dangerous. Yeah, perhaps the good kind of danger where something really valuable can come of it. Yeah. So you're famous for having introduced a whole generation of Buddhist practitioners to the ideas of technology. You know, Buddhist Geeks was revolutionary in really understanding how computers, the internet, podcasting, etc., could be brought to bear on an ancient practice tradition in a modern sangha and so on. But things have really changed in the last decade. <laughs> One of the core characteristics of the digital age. <laughs> <laughs> and so tell me where you see things with all that now. Well, I think the idea that everything has changed so much in the last 10 years is really interesting. It's an interesting point to start looking at that question of how are things different now? Because it's like, you know, the difference between algebra and calculus. And again, I'm not a mathematician either, so excuse these poor analogies. <laughs> but, you know, in one, in algebra, you know, we're looking directly at things as they are, whereas calculus is looking at things as they're changing. And so it's almost like our world has taken that kind of leap in abstraction where the rate of change is so out of control in so many different directions and areas that a big part of, I think, what we're grappling with, or I see myself grappling with and others around me grappling with, is how to make sense of what practice is in the midst of so much change. And I think this is where the experimentation is arising from. It's, it's arising from a really deep need to figure out how are these things relevant. And I know some people's answer to that is a classical sort of fundamentalist approach where we say, okay, we're going to reconstruct the past and the past is good enough for now. You know, they got it right back then. So, you know, this whole thing of experimenting is missing the point. The point is to um, unearth the wisdom of the tradition and become like a fully embodied version of that. I haven't seen that working out super well for the communities and people that do it, although I see some really beautiful things in it as well. Many parts of it are exquisitely beautiful. Yeah. And there's so much there. I mean, there's so much. I remember talking to a, a friend of mine who had done a number of traditional three-year, three-month, three-week, three-day retreats. Which is from the Tibetan tradition. From the Tibetan tradition. It's their kind of hardcore practice and their way of training people in being lamas um, in, in being able to carry forward the tradition. Like, you know, you learn all of the things that you're supposed to know. Um, one of my past teachers called it intensive training for a non-existent job. <laughs> um, <laughs> she, had done, she had done a three-year retreat too. So she knew this firsthand. You know, I, I remember having a conversation with this friend and they started to share a little bit of the practices they'd done in that retreat that could never be secularized. I'm talking practices where in order to explore and fully understand the nature of disgust, you end up eating your own shit. Um, and that's a formal part of the training. And so there's all these that's things there. Catch on in the West. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, how many, how many Western <laughs> communities are forming around that practice? None that I'm aware of. Um, if they are, they probably, it's a private meetup, but <laughs> so there's, there's so many for that. things there. Yeah, there's an app for that. Okay. There's a lot of beauty in the shit eating tradition, but <laughs> <laughs> and there is. I, I have no idea what it's like to eat my own shit. Um, I probably will learn something. But um, that said, 
I don't think there is anything else to say. <laughs> We're having to deal with plenty of our own shit. Um, you found and- my weakness, which is poop jokes. <laughs> incapacitated. <laughs> so yeah, we have our own shit. And it's no less real than, you know, it's, it's just as I think this shit we deal with, you know, in the digital world, like how do I not be totally addicted to my computer and to screens and how do I go to sleep and not be an, an insomniac? Like those are really real important questions for a number of people, other people, you know, how do I feed myself and my children? Um, those are real questions as, as well. Um, and there's all kinds of different questions and different needs that people around the world are dealing with. And the digital age and you know what we've unleashed with the sort of the network and the increasing interconnectivity of the whole mess and the, the forces that have continued into that, the previous forces of you know, industrialization and all the ideologies that came out of the Western Enlightenment, you know, the whole thing is just crazy. And so I think the question of what is meditation now and how do we bring it to life and how does it actually make a real difference without simply being some sort of coping mechanism or a new thing to become addicted to that's slightly better than the other addictions, you know, or at least in our minds we can justify why it's better. I think that's a really interesting and important question. And do you have any answers or hints of answers to that question? I mean, I feel like I've seen little bits and pieces emerge. My felt sense right now is that the answers are emerging through our relationships with one another. Um, yes, this is where it gets quite fascinating. <laughs> Go ahead, please. As you know from the Will Berrien world, this seems to be the missing element in many of these traditions, but particularly in Buddhism, which is such a monk or nun-based tradition focusing on practices that you do all alone by yourself in a cave, and and that has its usefulness and its brilliance. And yet the interactive component, the human-to-human you space, the second-person space, seems to have been quite neglected Of course, there's a few, but this understanding of how we are all affecting each other continuously and how interesting that can be, not just as something we notice, but something that we can actually use as a practice is, to me, at least in the Buddhist tradition, quite new. I think so, too. And just to get at how pervasive what you're saying is in terms of people's orientation to meditation being about first themselves or their own individual experience. I still to this day, even though this is something I've really tried to deconstruct (laughs) and understand, almost every time that I think about meditation, I start with myself. I think about my experience and then I sort of extrapolate out. And I think what that reveals is how biased I am. and, And I'd say we are, because I don't think I learned this in isolation, how biased we are toward our view of reality being individual first and then everything else being outside of that. Sure, we can be connected to people and things outside of us, but that's the primary, who we are primarily as an individual. And that, from a philosophical standpoint, it just doesn't seem like that view is holding up well right now. 
it's not philosophically in vogue anymore. You know, <laughs> Descartes is not the the master philosopher anymore. Um, and philosophically, the, the most interesting stuff that I've run across, and again, I'm an amateur philosopher too, <laughs> amateur mathematician, philosopher, and musician. But um, you know, the most interesting stuff is really seems to be talking more about relationships uh, as the primary stuff from which humans are constructed. One of my favorite philosophers, uh, Alexander Bard and Jan Soderquist, they wrote a book recently called uh, Creating God in the Internet Age, Synthism, Creating God in the Internet Age. They kind of make a really strong philosophical argument for how who we are could best be viewed as a individual, that we are our networks of relationship. Not we are these nodes in the network, but you know we literally arise as a result of our relations. Now you're talking. I mean, I feel like this is incredibly accurate that the whole idea of the human being as an individual is mistaken from the get-go. And yet it's the fundamental building block of our culture and society. That idea is actually mistaken. I'm often quoted as saying, half of who we are is other people. Mm. And I really see that over and over again, that we are arising in this intersubjective matrix and the emphasis our society gives on our supposed individuality misses the point of that, doesn't understand that we are by nature co-constructing reality all the time with other people and in fact other animals. And also misses it in the other direction, too, that our own brain can be divided up and each of those divided pieces is an individual consciousness in the literal brain study sense where you can divide a person's brain in half and both of those halves independently think of themselves as individuals. So we can be divided up both ways. And I think that uh, there's a tremendous amount to be learned there. I like that you say half. This is getting into the philosophical differences, I guess, but but they're important because it seems like we all have philosophies, <laughs> and so and usually they're unexamined, and at the core of them, there's some basic fundamental beliefs about what reality is that animate everything. I would venture, and then as a result of all that, it changes how we do meditation, how we think about it, what we think is valuable about it. And I've been noticing as, again, a member of the millennials who grew up at the very tail end of the individual age, you know, the pre-internet age, and then grew up into and with the network, my sense of self feels really dual in that sense. I can relate to the individual perspective and keep coming back to it, I said, habitually almost. And yet there's something more about the network perspective that seems to be more accurately reflected in our current you know, state of technology and how we communicate, how we relate, how our economics are structured and our politics. And so to me, the, a big question is how to refashion meditation for the network, for the network self, for the network selves. That's a core question to me that has to be answered by any useful innovation in that space for people who are connected. Now, I know we've got Kenneth Volk, both of our good friend, who is having people, what's the name of the practice where you label out loud together? Yeah, social noting. Social noting, yeah. Mm -hmm. So 
Would that be an example of something that you're thinking of along these lines? Yeah, totally. That practice was what kind of opened my eyes to the possibility of meditation being more of an explicitly social exercise. And of course, you know, Kenneth didn't make up social meditation, but the idea of taking a practice that's been designed to be for the individual and to kind of make that leap across that boundary line is actually a really surprisingly hard leap to make. Um, even though it seems so obvious in retrospect, like, oh, do the technique that could be done internally and using an internal verbiage, you know, noting these experiences as they're happening. And then just do it out loud with other people. <laughs> it's not a huge difference. <laughs> and yet it's a world of difference. And part of what that leap that he made, the path that both Emily and myself are on, is you know, how do we translate more practices like that into social techniques? Because there's a whole lot of other practices that could be done out loud or with other people that traditionally have been done silently by oneself. Yeah, the Hindu Tantra tradition that I have a large background in does both a lot of uh, mantra practice aloud and also even meditation practice together aloud. So it's not unknown to me, although I will say that even in that tradition, the idea of meditating together in a group aloud was radical for that world. So some of these things only take the slightest twist, as you're saying, Kenneth's innovation of taking the typical noting practice that everyone's been doing in Vipassana forever, and then just doing it aloud together. Just that little twist seems like not very much, but it's actually a gigantic change and introduces all kinds of new elements and potentially new, in my opinion, new awakenings to the practice. Totally. It does. Um, it does have that effect. I've worked with enough people who've done that practice now to see that over and over again. Going back even further on your point, just to kind of trace that line of innovation backward, I was reading a book called The Birth of Insight a number of years ago, and it's a sort of scholarly look at how insight meditation arose in modern times. And what many people don't realize that haven't studied the stuff is that meditation at least in the Buddhist context, but for sure in the Theravada Buddhist context, is something that was reinvented in a certain sense in the 1800s. There was not really a publicly or well-known lineages of monks practicing meditation. If they were, they weren't well-known, not documented by history. And what happened with this particular method, uh, the noting meditation method, is it rose in Burma, in uh, present-day Myanmar, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, in response to British colonialism. So the British had come in to the southern part of Burma and had taken over. And in the north, where there were all these amazing Buddhist temples and monks who were studying the texts and preserving them and passing them along and practicing you know, their current form of Buddhism as they knew it, something shifted. And the main shift had to do with these quote-unquote invaders, you know, people coming in and so one of the monks, a guy named Ledi Sayadaw, decided to start to teach everyone um, the Abhidhamma, these like technical texts about the nature of mind and how it works and how it functions. And in a way, he did this so that the knowledge could be distributed. And it wasn't like the British could come and whatever, take the monks away and then it's lost. 
And yet the effect of that is that out of teaching lay people these things that were, had been previously reserved to monks, it opened up this attitude of like, well, we can teach them this stuff too, this interesting um, things I read in this text that I've been trying to do. And, you know, and they, they ended up out of result of all this, the, the noting meditation arose as a translation of what was written down in another text called the Vasudhimaga, an older commentary on the path of meditation. And so every one of these things has been not a huge difference. I mean, I guess that's big in a certain way for them culturally, but have involved changing how one does the thing that one is faithful to and thus changes it in the process. And yet there's some thread behind it that, that goes back. Um, there's something common to social noting as there is to what's described in the Vasudhimaga. There's a relationship still there even though it's changed a number of times now. Yeah, so as we look at this unbundling, some people see that as the natural ebb and flow of how spiritual traditions and maybe specifically Buddhist tradition has always functioned. Mm -hmm. That these traditions remake themselves over and over again to be relevant Obviously, that has occurred dozens, maybe even hundreds of times in the long history of Buddhism in various countries. And yet, there's another opinion about this that I hear more and more, uh, especially in the wilds of the internet, which is that this means that Buddhism as a tradition actually is dying or is dead, and that it's being cut up and rendered and People are finding, as you mentioned, you know, special, beautiful practices in there, but they're then being radically decontextualized and reformed into something that is perhaps completely unrecognizable as Buddhism, as a tradition, or even as spirituality at all. And I'm curious if you have an opinion about that or, or a viewpoint on that. Well, I would agree that Buddhism is dying and in the sense that every institution that's carried forward important human knowledge is dying. Because this unbundling force is not just happening to Buddhism. Um, it's happening across the board with all human knowledge. Yes. You know, sometimes it's called the great unraveling. Every institution that had been basically had bundled some of our best stuff. <laughs> you know, these are the good hits. <laughs> They're getting pulled apart and reconfigured and and mashed up with other uh, streams of knowledge that maybe hadn't been connected with before. And I think that's, of course, the most interesting, exciting part of this is that the boundary lines that we'd previously drawn in the in the modern age they're falling apart. And so there are new possible configurations that can come from that. But it's also true that yeah, there's something that's being lost. And as you say, it's not something that we're just now losing. It's something that's constantly being, ha having been lost. You know, old, temporarily stable knowledge bases, communities of practice, relationship structures, cultural matrices, you know, all of that coming together in a, in a particular time and place and working for a while. And then when the time and place or the conditions that supported it change, which, by the way, Buddhism as a tradition talks about endlessly this process, um, <laughs> you know, then it changes. Buddhism changes. It, something dies and then something seems to take its place or something new comes online. 
So, you know, I sort of take the position of, yeah, there's birth and death. This is nothing new. And what's being born right now is unique and different because our time is unique and different. But it's also, there's something that's not changing about this, this basic process of birth and death, of how, you know, something comes into being, it's beautiful, it serves things for a time, or it serves its function, and then it changes, it goes away, you know, people grieve, they feel like we're screwed, <laughs> the golden age of enlightenment is over, <laughs> and then a few towns but down, you know, 10 years from then, some amazing thing happens some person's born you know a new prophet comes into the world whatever and uh they shared some new good news <laughs> that's better news so you know in a way like i think it's just yeah whatever let the thousand flowers bloom <laughs> yeah my dad said that whatever is my generation's fuck you <laughs> <laughs> so take it as you will <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> <laughs> I have heard that as well. The story you brought up, it's like, well, it's dying. And it's like, yeah, it's really painful for something I love to die. And yet that's not what Buddhism professes to be about anyways, holding on to things like, give me a break. If you really want to deal with these things seriously, then why not bring to bear some of the wisdom of the very thing that you're mourning uh, to the situation? And then it's not totally dead. Then it's alive again. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that would be my response. Yes. <laughs> I work with a lot of Silicon Valley executives and high-level tech folks who don't even believe that they're going to die someday, you know? Uh, literally. Literally, like that their physical bodies will be able to be prolonged indefinitely as long as they don't get in an accident of some sort. They'll just be um, conditionally immortal. And many of those people also believe that they may be massively augmented by AI of various sorts. Some of them are, in fact, quite fearful of the apocalyptic AI future, but others believe they will be augmented or have various pals around who are artificial intelligences. And it's quite fascinating to see how this view, which in one way, metaphorically, is like a completely magical view, something that you could find in Tantrism a thousand years ago if you thought of the sort of magic version of it, immortality and, you know, these disembodied intelligences or non-human intelligences, but which now seem to, at least for some people, believe they are on the verge of coming into manifest reality in a technological form. And I just can't imagine anything that would affect one's life or one's um, spiritual practice more than believing that, you know, you wouldn't die and that you would be actually augmented by some kind of artificial intelligence so that you have superhuman cognitive abilities. And so to me, we're dealing with a time and a place and a culture. And again, this comes back to the whole intersubjective question here of the practices that is rife with these super intense possibilities, extreme danger, and at the same time, almost inconceivably wild imaginative leaps that are on the verge of potentially becoming real. And I just am so stoked about the types of practices, the types of understandings that we're leaning into here as opening up towards that future. 
Nice. I'm glad you are. <laughs> yeah. I, and, you know, I know I'm just raving here, but in other words, it's not that I think that that particular future will happen, but that this isn't some science fiction scenario in terms of the fact that, like, you and I know people who think that way every day. And they're coming to, certainly to me, and asking to be taught to meditate. And they want to understand their own minds so that in this infinite future that they are imagining for themselves, they can have the, a source of wisdom. I'm not sure how this is leading up to a question, except that I want to see if you have anything to say along like the future of technology aspect of this. The way that our rapidly, rapidly changing world is creating new possibilities for awakening. Mm. What you're sharing immediately reminded me of reading Ray Kurzweil's book, The Singularity is Near, when it came out in 2005. This was you know, 12 years ago, and I was really getting into his sort of predictions about the future of information technology and the way that that was going to impact society. And now he's at Google, of course. He's director of engineering at Google, and he's actually helping build those things that he was at that point forecasting. And it's pretty outrageous stuff. And what I've been surprised about these years later, looking back at his forecasting and the way that he did it, is that he was pretty much right on the money. Now, whether or not that holds out for the next, you know, decades, because there's some big leaps, you know, uh, that would have to happen. You know, quantum computing would have to become a normal thing. Artificial intelligence, general AI would have to become like a real thing. And then AI would have to start somehow improving itself really fast. Nanotechnology and all of the barriers to having a really workable, mature nanotech and biotechnologies, like all of those things, still there's so much there from a technical perspective that hasn't been solved. And there's so many requirements in terms of, for instance, quantum computing, you know, the ability to have that type of paradigm shattering new computing platform is required for so many of these other things to come true. And yet, like you say, there's so much that's happening and has been happening, and it seems like the trajectory is in that direction. <laughs> so you know, we might reach some sort of physical limitation or something and not be able to go beyond that. I'm not sure. But it seems like we're just, even now, still unlocking the ramifications of the physics of like over a century ago. And so, yeah, I don't think meditation is like one of the last areas <laughs> to be really touched by that, touched by, you know, the work that Einstein and others did, <laughs> Niels Bohr. It's like, we're just now coming around. <laughs> we're like the most conservative people in existence. But um, I'm excited too. I'm, I'm more cautiously optimistic now than I've ever been about it. When I was reading that book, I was like hype. I, I called myself a Buddhist transhumanist for a while. Nice. Uh, at that time. And now kind of with some more space and distance, unfortunately not living in Silicon Valley, no offense. Um, <laughs> I feel like I've got a kind of distance from the faith-based elements of that view. seems like there's a fundamental faith in that the core of what life is is information and matters simply like a computing substrate for that information. That is obviously a really powerful way of looking at reality and it opens up so many potentials but it also feels like it restricts some aspect of what life is that can't be reduced to information 
And I'm not sure exactly how to talk about that beyond just saying what I said. (laughs) But part of what to me has been so interesting about some of the contemplative and mystical traditions is the way in which they point to what we don't know. Yeah. How authoritatively they point to not knowing and to how vast things are outside of the world of our concepts. Um, And I wonder, you know, to what degree that's being overlooked in the rush to digitize enlightenment. I think it's being almost completely overlooked from what I can tell. Yeah. The thing that I've been so transformed by and deeply moved by is the way that meditation makes the unknown the place of experience and it makes it home. That mm. kind of mysterious unknown becomes very welcome and very fresh and new. And what I don't see in the Silicon Valley world is an understanding of that. There's a, as you rightly characterize it, a kind of religious belief in that tearing everything apart into knowns and being able to then hack our brains to kind of get off eternally. And, um, you know, at some kind of future burning man on the moon. And I don't see anyone in that world really feeling their way into this kind of, just to put it paradoxically, familiarity with the unknown or let's say love of not knowing, which is, as far as I can tell, where all the juice is in spirituality. Hmm. This sort of gets into kind of fuzzy territory to talk about because I feel like uh, I don't quite have a way of making sense of what I'm about to say. But I've sort of found also in what you're describing, Michael, the where the juice is of not knowing the unknown. It feels also kind of like an orientational shift in terms of how one knows. Like how I know now or the process of knowing seems to arise very much from the not knowing that when I drop the sense of being clear or certain about how things are at the right time, I'll say that at the right time then, and can sit in the discomfort of that or just be, you know, walking around uncomfortable um, and blaming it on my wife. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, honey. Somehow there is new knowing that arises, but it's tempered by that lack of certainty. It's like, it's like seeing a pattern emerge out of the amorphous space as opposed to sitting and thinking really hard and having a good idea, you know, and being able to somehow take credit for that. It's more like I kind of exhausted all the bad stuff and then was open enough to see something new. I have a feeling this is kind of how creativity works probably generally for humans, whether or not they make sense of it that way. Yeah, this is a restatement of standard creativity theory from Wallace onward, where that third step out of four steps of the creative process is to let go of trying to solve the problem and just refocus on something else. And then later coming back to it and realizing that an insight has arisen from the unconscious. Right. So there's a kind of just letting this not knowing or letting a non-focusing on the problem be the way that you solve it. Yes. And in Buddhist tradition, this is characterized as prajna, you know, the wisdom mind, this kind of manjushri sword of wisdom that just 
arises out of emptiness. Yes. Which is kind of a beautiful metaphor, beautiful model um, for how that works. And as much as I love that, I feel like the way that we tend to talk about it is that's a great way to solve problems. <laughs> in fact, it is. And yet for me, the other way of looking at it, and again, for me, the juicier or more satisfying way to look at it is that's also just a great place to hang out without even trying to use it to solve any problems. Mm. That kind of just a stream of pure confusion, you might call it, just hanging out with the unknowing is uh, tremendously pleasant. And also the only time I'll allow myself to use a bunch of cliche spiritual metaphors about uh, spontaneity or sahaj type feelings. When you just allow the mind to relax into complete unknowing, there's a sense of pure freshness and uh, spontaneity that is uh, extremely pleasant. So I see it as being a, a good thing in its own right. And, right. and yet it also, good it's good in itself. And yet it also, as you point out, is wonderful for creativity and problem solving. Yeah. I imagine that for people that tend toward annihilation, <laughs> which uh, listening to your conversation with Kenneth, the second episode, I believe it was the cosmic joke. I immediately noticed that you guys both had that tendency. You're like, how can anyone be so worried about death? Like death is great. <laughs> I'm on the other side of that spectrum where I tend toward, you know, in, in Buddhist parlance, they called it craving for becoming, like wanting to become something new or like loving to see what new emerges out of that stream of confusion. <laughs> <laughs> and so acknowledging that what you say could be true hasn't been my experience so much. I don't like resting in confusion. Mm. Um, <laughs> like to get to the end where like the confusion morphs into something else. But yeah, I see it's really important. And, you know, maybe another dimension of this, which is also at play here, for me is the sense that when a solution does arise from that place, it could be just as easily said, or maybe more easily said, that the problem solved me instead of me solving it. And that's where I get really fascinated with the intersection between meditative approaches that go there, you know, that bring people into a firsthand experience of decentering the reference point and sort of getting in touch with the phenomenology of not knowing and what emerges from quote unquote, the unconscious. <laughs> what the fuck is that? Where it gets really interesting bringing that to bear on approaches like Silicon Valley's basic approach is problem solving. You know, how do we solve this problem, solve this problem. Anywhere there's a problem to be solved, there's a new you know, product to be created and marketed. And, um, and so what would it mean for people to having problems solve them instead of them solving the problems? There's a felt sense of difference when one makes meaning in that direction as opposed to thinking like, I'm the one that's going to go change the world, you know? Yeah, this is what I feel like we're both pointing to, is that there's a kind of um, pregnant possibility inside the problem itself that is, in fact, the solution mm -hmm. that does point towards something incredibly important and awakening. And it's that shift of stance from I'm solving the problem to the problem solving me that is the crucial move there. And it's the one that 
in my own anecdotal experience, I'm not seeing so much happening in the Silicon Mm. Valley world. And it might be one of the major things we can contribute to that world is helping them to feel comfortable in these places of creative possibility that involve the discomfort of confusion or not knowing. Yeah, and, and even not knowing who I am. Not knowing who I am, not knowing what I believe, where I come from, where I'm going, anything. Yeah, yep. All of those tend to cause tremendous discomfort for people who are used to solving problems. And yet when the stance gets switched around to the problem-solving you, those very questions are the ones that fill you with the most aliveness and creative possibility. Mm -hmm. And dread. Um, Exquisite (laughs) dread. (laughs) (laughs) You used the term non-duality earlier, and I thought back to a conversation I had with a Zen teacher named David Loy, who I was working with. I was, at that time, really crystallizing the sense that there wasn't a non-duality, that there really were these different types of non-duality people were talking about. But I wanted to see what he thought about that. And this kind of like was my test for him. (laughs) And I said, you know, do you think there are different types of non-duality? And he said, well, there's many types of non-duality as there are dualities. And I found that to be really helpful because sort of was a statement about how the mind works or how we tend to feel that there is a problem between two things and then get locked into a struggle with those two things. And at some point we might see that there's actually not as big of a struggle or a fundamental problem as we assumed, you know, to begin with. That's really interesting because there's so many problems. (laughs) There's so many things that, you know, there's so many issues that arise being humans and presumably people in Silicon Valley, just like any industry, are trying to solve some of those problems. Maybe they're solving old problems in new ways. But still, there's a sense that there are usually two things that are at odds and we can't square them. And feels like somehow if I could square these things, like for a long time for me, it was the Vipassana versus what at the time I was calling non-duality, like the pure awareness approach. That was a real problem for me for a number of years. And then it ceased to be a problem. So, yeah, I'm curious about looking at non-duality from that vantage because then there's a lot we know already from the meditative traditions about how to work with polarities and opposites. Like there's different ways of working with them. You know, I hate to go back into the solutionism, you know, like, but but really meditation does have a lot to offer uh, coming up with solutions um, if that's how one is uh, using it. It absolutely does. I'm not saying in any way that those creative solutions aren't there and that they're not valuable. Uh, They are absolutely there and I think they are invaluable. I just wanted to emphasize that even previous to the solutions, it's already valuable. Mm, Yeah, for sure. You know, that's a different viewpoint that seems like it can come online uh, after uh, letting go (laughs) quite a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it can just happen all at once, but usually that's at Burning Man. (laughs) (laughs) On the moon, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I've been quite interested in your teaching programs. I know that you're in the midst of changing them, but if there's anything you want to describe here or plug, this is your opportunity to talk to my vast audience about that. (laughs) Uh, So Emily Horn and myself, um, this is my wife and teaching partner, we do most of our 
teaching together and sort of bounce off of each other quite a bit. And it leads to an interesting synergy. Um, you talked about your blogging partner and how different you all's approaches, and yet it sounds like there's something really beautifully synergistic in it. Um, mm. Mindfulness and sex, for instance, bringing those two together. We're, we're sort of in a constant process of iteration and figuring out you know what's working and what's not. I feel like that's part of the challenge of teaching meditation right now is that you know while there are models emerging and while people are taking old models and just quote unquote putting them online, most of the exciting work seems to me needs to be done in terms of not just innovating on how meditation is taught, but also innovating on the very structures of how it's practiced together. You know, the business models and the the virtual connections and how that works and how we do social meditation on a Zoom video hangout in breakout rooms, you know, how we do it in virtual reality rooms soon. Um, like those questions to me don't have clear answers yet. And so I find a frustrating amount of time is spent um, really trying to experiment with and find out what would be really useful for people. So we've been in a process of that for the last couple months that we're just coming out of. And to our not total surprise, but a little bit surprise, we found that the people that are tuning into what we do with Meditate.io really are very hyper independent in their orientation. Like they're like DIY extreme. And I think there's something about that orientation to learning that really um, is beautiful. And we want to kind of cater to that. But at the same time, you know, it can go off the rails in the sense that people get overconfident in what they know and what they can know by themselves. And so our first thing that we've done recently is to start offering our time in the form of teacher meetings with people so that they can you know, get access to yet another couple of trained teachers and talk about their practice. And to me, this is like the biggest bang for the buck. I know you do this work, Michael, with people. Yeah. And it's, it's like the most, I'd say, intensive long-term retreat practice and working one-on-one -on -one with someone where you end up clicking and there's like good, healthy boundaries that's been the most ROI, you know, you could say in terms of time, it's the most return on investment, being able to learn from another person with another person, um, just huge. So that's what we're doing now. And then we've, we've got some other things, but they're not kind of formed yet. All right, Vince, very good to talk to you. I've been dying to do this for a long time. So thanks. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And I look forward to uh, hearing the hopeful rebooting of Buddhist Geeks. Oh, thank you. Yeah, me too. All right. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat with me this summer in Costa Rica. From August 3rd to the 10th, we will come together to focus on non-dual meditation practice with a particular theme of embodiment of awakening in meditation and in life. For seven days, I'll be giving non-dual meditation teachings, practices, and guided meditations, as well as personal meditation instruction to each member of the group. The retreat will be hosted at the Blue Spirit Retreat Center, located in the Nosara region of Costa Rica's Pacific Coast. 
The retreat center is perched on a hilltop overlooking the ocean and a three-mile white sand beach that is a protected turtle refuge. The pristine nature, subtropical climate, and members of the Deconstructing Yourself Sangha will create a unique environment for your meditation retreat. If you're interested, check out deconstructingyourself.org where there's a link to the information page. I look forward to seeing you there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash signup or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. Listening.